Genesis 16, starting verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity to preach your word. I uh, just pray for everyone that is here, Lord. It's no accident that those that are here are here. And so I just ask, Lord, that you would penetrate hearts and minds right now. I pray that I will remove myself from the equation. I pray that you would just that I would just speak whatever that you would have me to speak to bring you glory. I pray that people are encouraged today, uplifted today. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, you may be seated. Thank you. If I were to survey the room, I think we would agree. Um, it's harder to go through a trial alone than it is to go through a trial with someone. Would you all agree? Right? It's, it's one thing to go through a trial to have hard times, but it's another thing to go through alone. God created us for relationship. It's one of the basic human needs is how God set in motion the universe, in fact, himself being a relationship in himself. One God and three distinct persons. Another basic need is the need to be understood. We like validation. Amen. Can you validate that? 
We like validation. We like to have our perspective valued, right? So I think we could agree nobody likes to be ignored. Nobody likes to be overlooked, right? No one likes to be passed up. But probably the worst combination is to be both suffering and be overlooked. Suffering alone and be overlooked. Genesis 16 paints a picture in Hagar, the suffering servant, someone who both suffers and is overlooked by those around her. As a matter of fact, this very story in the Bible is often overlooked and overshadowed, sandwiched in between the covenant promise to Abraham. It's overlooked. Genesis 16. We go to 12, 13, 14. 15, 17, when the promise is reaffirmed to Abraham. So I want to walk through this with you in hopes that it can give you some encouragement in those times you may feel alone in your trials and even overlooked, that God both sees you and he does not overlook you. Anyone need some encouragement? Show of hands, who needs some encouragement? I know, me, I do. So let's look at the roadmap of where we are. Uh, I don't want to assume everyone in the room has the same knowledge of where we are. So it's the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. We see creation, creation story. How did we get here, right? Then we see uh, the corruption of man through the sin of Adam and Eve. Then we see uh, uh, the first murder, right, Cain of Abel. We see corruption. We see the corruption of mankind gets so bad, it leads to the destruction of man in the flood. We see God keep Noah and his family and repopulate the earth. Then we see the dispersion of mankind throughout the earth after the Tower of Babel. If you've been here the last few weeks, you heard Brian talk about that. Creation, corruption, destruction, dispersion. Creation, Corruption, destruction, dispersion. So that's where we are. The entire rest of the book of Genesis, the whole rest of the book, 12 through 50, it's about God's choosing or election of the Jewish nation to bless all peoples of the earth. And he does that through a man named Abram, who we meet in the 12th chapter of Genesis. God tells him to leave his homeland Uh, and go to Canaan, he promises to make Abram a great nation. This promise is reaffirmed with the covenant in Genesis 15. God promised to make Abram's descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, right? And that's kind of where we jump to 17 and talk about the promise is reaffirmed, and then we go through the rest of the book. But Genesis 16, Genesis 16. So God promised an heir and numerous descendants. But we start chapter 16 with a problem. Abram and Sarai did not yet have a son to carry on the line, and they were getting advanced in years. In chapter 12, Abram was already 75 years old when he received the promise. So that's where we open up, just to give you a a picture of what's going on here and where we are. Chapter 1. Now Sarai, Abram's, uh, verse 1, excuse me. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So the Bible is very deliberate 
in its descriptions of people and in how it names people. So she's a, we, we, what do we learn about this person, Hagar? Number one, she's a female. Strike one against her in this society, in this patriarchal society. Women didn't have rights. Strike two, she's an Egyptian. She's a foreigner. She was taken out of her land. That's strike two. Strike three, she was a slave. She was subservient. She was as low as you can get on the socioeconomic ladder. A female Egyptian servant. So she already had a lot going against here. So I want to pause real quick before we go any further. This passage is what's called descriptive, not prescriptive. What do I mean by that? This is telling us what happened. This is not telling us what to do. The Bible does not in any way support slavery, going back to abusive relationships, or treating people as less than you. So let's just get that out the way. The founding fathers had that part wrong. The Bible does not support slavery. As a matter of fact, Moses, who wrote this book, wrote it in his first 40 years of life, most scholars think, when he was in Egypt, and it was used as an encouragement to the Israel, the nation of Israel when they were enslaved for 400 years. Read the book of Exodus. It's all about God getting people out of slavery. So I just want to rebuke that lie before I go any further that the Bible supports slavery because it does not. The promise was given to Abram, but Sarai is barren. So what does she do? Verse 2, and Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Interestingly here, Sarai did not say God could cause, uh, could not cause her to bear children. You can read this and you can say in your mind something that it doesn't say. It doesn't say that she, had, she did not have faith. It doesn't say she didn't think God could do it. Read it again. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She acknowledges that the Lord is the one who opens the womb. The Lord is the one who closes the womb. She's just going to go in a different route because God is not doing what he said he would do. So it's possible to have faith God can do something, but act in disbelief because you think God won't do something. Should I say that again? It's possible to have faith God can do something, but act in disbelief because we think God won't do something. Show of hands, anyone guilty of that? (laughs) Me, all day. So in the ancient Near East, barrenness was considered, sorry ladies, a female problem. In the ancient Near East, they didn't have, uh, remember, the Bible is not a science book, okay? This was uh, ancient Near Eastern thought. Uh, It was due to the belief that the man deposited a seedling child in the woman, and the child would grow, similar to a plant. The child would grow in the woman. So if the child failed to grow, 
it was seen actually as divine punishment on the woman. So uh, look at what Sarai says here. So that's kind of what we're dealing with. It says, go to my servant that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. So the phrase actually obtain children is basically, it's the same in Hebrew as to be built up. So Sarai was going to use Hagar to build herself up because she didn't think God was going to do it. She didn't think God was going to do it through her. In ancient times, it was a custom for barren women to give a uh, a slave to her husband. This was actually a practice back in that time. Uh, but here's here's another thing: any children born to that slave were not were considered the wife's and not the slaves. So Hagar, she didn't have any rights to herself, to her children, to anything. So you can imagine how she was feeling at this point. Right. I mean, I don't care what if that is the culture. You can imagine she was feeling pretty lousy, I would imagine. Stepped on, discarded. Right. Let's look at verse three. So Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So this is interesting. Here we have a little bit of a title change, right? Sarai gives Hagar to Abram as a wife, meaning a secondary wife. Again, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. The Bible does not support polygamy. That... uh <laughs> It's a cultural thing. It's how it was back then. So it's not God's intent. So nobody could become the husband's secondary wife without the mistress's consent or permission. So Sarai, it was actually on Sarai. She elevated Hagar to that status in order to kind of circumvent God. In a sense, in a sense, she wanted to elevate Hagar just for her own gain to be built up. Because she didn't want to be, you know, have no descendants from her. It's pretty messed up, huh? So in Hagar, verse 4, went into Abram, uh, excuse me, and he um, went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. So we see Sarai's plan backfires, right? NASB says Sarai became insignificant in in her sight. So what's going on here? Hagar viewed her conception as a blessing and Sarai's barrenness as a curse. So what's happening? Hagar thought she has gained upper hand in the house of Abram. So you got that power struggle going on. It's a bit contentious. It has some drama going on. What's interesting is that word, and Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. This blew my mind. You know what that word is? Hamas. Hamas. Sound familiar? Who is Israel fighting right now? 2024. Hamas means violence 
In Hebrew, in this context, it means injustice, injustice, harm, in, injustice. So Sarah, like, like, low-key, she put a curse. <laughs> low-key, she cursed Abram uh, it, because it was just, it was so much contention. She felt so slighted uh, by this, but it was her own doing. You know how you can do stuff and just and just fly off and be like, you know, I didn't do that, even though it was you, and you know fully it was you. That's kind of what was going on here. Y'all learning something? Okay. I'm about to bring it to the application. Just bear with me. It's a lot of history and cultural stuff, I know. So Sarai, she's hurt by the turn of events, right? But it, 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 she wishes Hamas... She wishes harm on an injustice on Abram. Look at what Abram does in verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant, not my wife, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So what did Abram do? He relinquished control of Hagar back to Sarai. He said, Oh, she's a slave. She's, she's yours. She, she's a slave. Do whatever you want with her. So again, Hagar's her status and position is at the mercy uh, of whatever Sarah wants it to be. Um, Abram here. This is actually an ancient Near Eastern code of law that slaves, uh, uh, slave owners rather, could punish their slaves for being insolent. It was a ancient Near Eastern thing. Descriptive, not. Prescriptive. Descriptive, not prescriptive. You have to say that now because so much miseducation out there. So get this, Hagar, she's so severely mistreated, she flees into the wilderness pregnant. Now, ladies, I've seen my wife pregnant two times. And I could tell you from observation that y'all don't even want to be pregnant in the house. In the air conditioning, let alone out in the desert in the wilderness somewhere. So you can imagine what she's going through. I don't know if you've ever been so angry that you're, like, shaking and crying. I imagine that's, that's what Hagar is going through. It's just, like, so much uh, 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 unfairness, so much distress that she's just like, I got to get out of here. I don't care what physical condition I'm in. I'm carrying a shell. I don't care. It's so bad. I just got to get out of here. But go to verse 7. Ready for the good news. This is what I, I, I kind of call this a, the shift in chapter 16. It's not broken into two parts, but I call this kind of part two. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Many people believe this is a theophany, if you heard of that, which is a visible appearance of God in the Old Testament period. Often, but not always, in human form, every theophany where God takes a human form, it foreshadows the incarnation, where God took the form of a man to live among us. So it's a theophany, and we can see from the rest of this passage that the angel of the Lord, he speaks in first person, so that's another indication that we are dealing with God. God. So before uh, we go on here to what the, the angel's um, proclamation here to Hagar, I want to teach on a couple of the attributes of God 
characteristics of God to kind of set the stage on why this is so significant, why this encounter is so significant, if you all will permit me to do that. All right, I'm going to do it anyway. So Wayne Grudem is a theologian. Uh, He wrote this book, Systematic Theology. Strongly encourage it, but this is where I'm getting these concepts from. God has what's called communicable attributes. Going to be using a couple big words. Communicable attributes. And he has what are called incommunicable attributes. Communicable attributes are those that God shares a piece of with us. Right? So God is love. I have the ability to love. Right? God has knowledge. We have the ability to have knowledge. God is merciful. We have the ability to show mercy and so on. Of course, it's not exhaustive, right? God is love. We're, we're, not, we're not complete love, but we have love, all right? And then there's those incommunicable attributes, incommunicable, those that God does not share with others. God is eternal. God has no beginning or end. He sees all time equally vividly. Yet God sees events in time, and he acts in time. So Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. said, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. So God sits outside of time. He's not bound by it. Two, omnipresence. Just going to list a few of them. Omnipresence. God is present everywhere. Read Psalm 139. It's a beautiful psalm. Where can I go from your presence? God is omnipresent. But the one I want to focus on is God's unchangeableness. And this is an attribute that can sometimes get overlooked. We look at the omnis, you know, omnipotent, omnipresent. But this is called immutability. If you ever, if you guys have ever heard, raise your hand if you heard that term. Kind of a big kind of a big word, theological word. Basically, unchangeableness. Okay, God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Malachi 3 6. For I the Lord do not change, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God is unchanging. Thank the Lord. Theologian Wayne Grudem, again, this is a quote from him, says, Our faith depends on a person who is infinitely worthy of trust. Because he is absolutely and eternally unchanging. This is my favorite attribute of God because no matter what else you know about God, you, if he's immutable or unchanging, then we know that his other attributes will not change. If he's a loving God, because of his immutability, he will always be a loving God. Right? If he's a forgiving God, because he's immutable... He will always be, for the rest of eternity, a forgiving God. If he's just, right? He's immutable also. So we know if he's just and immutable, he will always be just and fair throughout the end of time and into eternity. Amen? That's encouraging. Verse 8. Verse 8, and he said, the angel of the Lord, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, 
Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So I took some time to talk about God's attributes for a second. So you would understand that here, God is not asking Hagar for information in order to gain knowledge that he did not already know. The angel of the Lord is asking Hagar for Hagar's sake. Notice the angel of the Lord asks the question, but Hagar only answers the first part of the question. Read it again. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mister Sarai. Angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So Hagar knew where she was running from, but she wasn't entirely sure where she was running to. The text says, the text mentions sure, so geographically she was likely traveling back to her native country, Egypt. She was running back to what she knew before God took her out of there, but she wasn't, a lot of, uh, from what I read, the uh, commentaries say she doesn't really know where she was going. She wasn't in that state where she had like a definite you know, and, and which is why she didn't answer that second part of the question. So let that be an encouragement to you that when you don't know where you're going, God knows right where you are supposed to be. Mm. When you don't know where you're going, God knows exactly where you're supposed to be. Praise God for that. Then the angel of the Lord gives Hagar the promise. Look at this. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. Remember, children are a blessing. Ishmael was not the heir of promise, right? It was Isaac. But God still said, I'm going to multiply you. Why? Because Abram's seed is blessed. In chapter in 16, he doesn't say anything about Sarah. This is Abram's. He, the, God uh, chose Abram, right? So anything coming from Abram is going to be blessed. It's going to be multiplied. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael literally means God hears. So God heard the affliction of Hagar, and because God is unchanging, he hears my affliction. He hears your affliction. But look at the text. The text never says that Hagar even called on God. Woo! God heard her affliction, not her call. The Bible says the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. So when you're in a place, the end of yourself, and you don't have any words, and you're crying, and you go to pray, and all you can do is, <sighs> God interprets that, and he takes it to the Father 
Oh, man. The Spirit takes it to the Father. It's, it's amazing. God is amazing. God is amazing. You don't need eloquent words. This is for somebody in here. You don't need eloquent words, right? Okay? You don't need to sound good. You don't need to sound polished. God hears you in your affliction. So this pronouncement here, he will be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> it's kind of funny, the wording there. But it's a result of Sarai's disobedience. And actually, through this line of Ishmael came the Arab nations, which are currently and still fighting against Israel. Disobedience has some serious consequences. And I'm not here to make a political statement. I don't like when people talk politics in the pulpit. But that land is Israel's, y'all. That land belongs to Israel. Was given through the promise to Abram. So they're but they're fighting. They're fighting over there. Behold, you are pregnant. You shall call his name Ishmael. The Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against his kinsmen. So look at verse thirteen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar here says El Roy, the Hebrew phrase translated God of seeing. This refers to God's ability to see everything. Hagar here is making it personal. God who sees me. So God saw Hagar in her time of distress in her time of running, right, things were messy. But God fully saw and understood Hagar. There's another word for somebody. God fully understands you. Completely. You might feel like, man, nobody gets me, man. What is going on? Everything's against me. God gets you. He understands you fully and completely. Hagar understood she had an encounter with God. So we don't have to uh, be doing well for God to see us. And I want to stress this point. You don't, have to, you don't have to be doing well for God to see you. God sees you when you're at your best. God sees you when you're at your worst. When you're, you're crying and don't have the words to say. God sees you. Right? You don't have to dress well for God to see you. You don't have to have a title for God to see you. You don't have to uh, be a giving and generous, give a lot of money for God to see you. Right? You don't have to know the text in the Hebrew this and the Greek that in order for God to see you. God sees you. In later chapters, when Hagar and Ishmael were fleeing again, which they did, God heard the cries of the baby, Ishmael. And that's why he came back and responded again through an, through an infant. <laughs> through an infant. That's the kind of God we serve. We heard the, the cries of a baby. So God graciously reached out. He met with Hagar, an Egyptian Gentile. 
And she learned about the character of God. So the ancient uh, Egyptian gods that she may have been running back to, their favor could not be counted on. Over 2,000 ancient Egyptian gods, some of them were spiteful. Some of them had changeable characters, depending what you did on a specific day. It could change their disposition toward you, and now they're against you, right? Most of them were human animal hybrids, so completely unrelatable. So Hagar's statement, it, it expresses awe and reverence that she saw God and she did not die. God saw Hagar, but in, in his grace, she also saw him. This is a powerful passage. Hagar's recognition, he is a guy who sees. It's important because she recognized God cared for her. A lowly servant girl. He was watching out for her well-being. So in ancient times, places were often named after experiences. So the place was called... Be'er Lahairoi, it means the well of the living one who sees me. So you can see your, your idols, but they can't see you. Mm. She was going back to those strange and foreign gods. She could see them, but they can't see you. They can't identify with you. Because of God's immutability, Y'all, the same God that saw Hagar is the same God that sees me and you. Only a living being can see Hagar in the way God saw Hagar. So, but look at the full picture here. Look at the full picture. Go back to verse 7. See, God didn't just see her. God didn't just see Hagar. Watch this. Number one, God found her. Oh, God found her in the wilderness. The same God. Someone say same God. Same God finds you in your trouble. Two, God spoke to her. Same God. Same God will speak to you. God, don't skip over it. He instructed her. He told her where to go and what to do. Same God will instruct you. Number four, God heard her, Ishmael, the same God, he hears you. Number five, God blessed her with descendants, the same God, I'm going to bless you. Number five, God, Elroy, God saw her and God sees you. And the God of seeing became flesh. In the person of Jesus Christ, the reason the angel of the Lord was able to identify with Hagar is because he became like Hagar. Mm. Look at Isaiah 53, 3 and 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Glory to God. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Thank God 
that he sees us, he hears us, he speaks to us, he instructs us. So that's what I want to leave you with today because you can have a misconception that you have to be noticeable for God to see you. Mm-mm-mm. God sees God sees the littlest child and he understands intimately what each and every one of you need, what I need. So did that help anybody today? Can we give God some praise for being the God of seeing? Oh, you're worthy, God. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you for this word. Thank you, Lord, for being a relatable God. Thank you for being the God of seeing. Thank you, Lord God, that you meet us in our affliction. And we just praise your name. I thank you. Uh, I just pray that your people can be encouraged by this word and just take this with them. And just know that they are loved by you. That you are the one true God. In Jesus' name, amen.